0: hey everybody welcome to the inking of immunity podcast i am
1: chris and i am with my trusty co-hosts mike Smetana.
2: oh yeah it's becky
1: welcome to the podcast uh, who are we talking to today, Mike? Today, we are joined by a very special guest, Mel Lefebvre. Am I pronouncing that no. correctly? No. No. <laughs> that's, okay. that's okay.
0: I know. It's like one of those French ones. It's like, ugh, how do I get through this?
1: You got to say the R up in your... in your. Throat. No, you can just say Lefebvre. So Mel is, and, and I apologize if I mispronounce any of these, uh, Mel is a Métis. Nihia? Nihio? Nihia? Nakoda, Saltou, French and Irish mother. (laughs) And I know I mispronounced one of those. You got French and Irish right. And mother. Mother, that was. And mother. Yeah, well done. (laughs) Mel is also a community worker, researcher, writer, visual artist, traditional tattoo practitioner, and a PhD student. That is a lot of hats in an individualized program at Concordia University. Uh, She also teaches indigenous perspectives at Concordia in their applied human sciences department. And Mel's research is focused on traditional tattooing as a mode of healing and reconnection for urban indigenous LGBTQIA plus and indigenous women. Mel also works closely with the Native Women's Shelter of Montreal and is the vice president of the board advocating for the safety of Indigenous people, as well as Indigenous representation, education, and employment. Welcome to the show, Mel. Thanks. <laughs> so I know I've already given a, a little bit of an introduction, but could you tell us uh, a little bit about yourself and uh, how you came to to do this research?
2: Uh, well, okay. So I'll
0: start with the introduction, which is like, can be a little bit long because I have to do the protocol thing. So I'll start in... One of my languages, traditional languages, so tanse nitotentic, nitzigason mel, egua kakua okay maseo, uh nia oma testowaya kiinu, nia oma epitegosisan otepensu, egua nehio egua munyao, nia oma asaso. So I just in the awaywen, which is like super broken and those teachings came from uh, Joseph Naitauhau, one of my elders, and Mo Clark, a good friend. Um, I said, hello friends, my name is Mel, um, and also Kakwao Kwe which is Porcupine's twin. And that was a name given to me by Joseph. Um, so I'm a two-spirit person, which in our language is testawaiakino, which means in-between person. Um, I am Michif, which was said, so sometimes we say Métis, but the traditional way of saying this is, is Michif, uh, Nihio, Nakoda, Soto, and French on my father's side, and Irish on my mother's side. I am a traditional tattoo practitioner, and I'm based in Jojage, or Montreal, um, and yeah, I'm all those things that Mike mentioned, and my, yeah, my PhD, my research is focused on traditional tattooing. Uh, mostly for healing, and my focus is, of course, on the community that I come from, which is um, Two-Spirit community, uh, trans community, Indigenous trans folks, gender-fluid folks, and Indigenous women. So before I get into anything, I just want to acknowledge my elders who guide me on this journey, and of course, I wouldn't really be here without their teachings and their, their guidance, and they keep me on the right track. So Dr. Mary Wilson, Blue Waters. Gawonotas Cedelia Fazio and Joseph Naitauhau, who I mentioned before. Of course, I would acknowledge uh, Dion Kazis, who's been on your your show. So he's my mentor. And he's a wonderful person, super generous human being, as you probably know. Um, He's taught me a lot about and welcomed me into this revival. um, And taught me a lot about care and consent and... um, protocol and being firm in my convictions and a lot more. So I just want to say kina to Dion. And as well, a big kina to my first mentor, who is uh, two-spirit trans, French, English, Mi'kmaq tattoo practitioner, Milo Laforte, who also taught me a lot about care and consent and inclusion, especially regarding youth, two-spirit youth, trans youth, and just kind of being mindful of including those perspectives because in our communities, of course, everyone's perspective is important whether you're a child, a baby or an elder, a senior person, you know, no matter what you're doing or what challenges you have, your perspective is always very valued. So one more section of my um, introduction is that we um, usually Uh, when we introduce ourselves, we speak about our families and where they come from and our family names so that other Indigenous folks can recognize us. Um, But it's also a way for us to, uh, I think, reconnect with ourselves and be mindful of who we are and where we came from and the responsibilities we have to uh, those people who came before us and went through a lot of these challenges to bring us to where we are today. So... As I mentioned, it's my father's side, who's, who's indigenous. So, um, his family, my grandmother's family came from Fisher Branch, Manitoba, uh, La Ranch, Saskatchewan and Pembina or Pembina. Some people call it North Dakota, which is triple mountain. Many of my ancestors were born on the red river settlement. And some of my family names include Desjardins, Delorme, Guy Jerome, Rock. Uh, Malataire, Vivier, and Lambert. And uh, in the early 1900s, my grandmother's family came to Quebec, where she was the last uh, child to be born, and she was born in Quebec, and subsequently my father was born there as well. So that takes care of the introduction. Um, What was your question, Mike? Sorry.
1: (laughs) So I'm just interested in how all of these experiences has informed your practice and research with traditional tattooing?
0: Well, um, I guess a big part of what led me here is my community work. So I do a lot of work with the Native Women's Shelter of Montreal, as you mentioned. And that can take on many forms, I guess. So to like immediate needs like food, where you're just kind of collecting and dropping off and stuff like that. To like longer term um, initiatives like now and for the last I don't know many years we've been working on reforming the youth protection and child welfare here in Quebec which is of course a colonial system which should not exist but does and a large portion of their of the children youth and young adults that are in there are Indigenous and uh, their families are still subjected and controlled by this system that shouldn't be there so. A large portion of the inspiration that leads to my work is providing that kind of care and healing and understanding what's going on in the community and seeing those needs. And so one of my responsibilities is to serve the community. And so I can do that in multiple ways, but one of them is to uh, provide that tattoo medicine. So I think you know, a lot of people in our community need healing for a variety of reasons. Um, and so that's that's an opportunity that I can bring to them so that we can kind of transform in that space together.
1: That is awesome. And I was fortunate enough to hear you speak about your work at the virtual tattoo gathering that was hosted by Dion yeah. uh, last year. So you, you talk about your work blending this community service with traditional tattooing. And I wanna ask you, what does healing mean to you or what does that look like to you?
0: Uh, well, I mean, I think it looks like a lot of things. I mean, there is a serious aspect to healing, but I think healing is also like Netflix and taking naps and like doing all those things that push back against capitalism, which requires you to be so busy all the time. And am I allowed to swear on this? Cause I'm probably going to swear okay, great. So I'm <laughs> just like, uh, fuck. anyway, so capitalism is evil. And so yeah, so I think there's like little ways that we can heal ourselves, but then larger traumas require more in depth kind of healing, maybe a longer term healing, or just something very powerful. And I think that tattooing is a way that we can do that. You know, it's I think it's um Like I mentioned, it's like an an opportunity to uh, maybe release some aspects of that trauma that no longer serve you. And then I think it's also like you're able to welcome in some kind of newness in that experience that could perhaps help to balance out that trauma that you're experiencing. Um, So yeah, I think it can look and feel and sound and, and be many things healing. And that healing, I feel, of course, it can happen in ceremony and together and in community. But I also think it really needs to happen on individual levels, meeting a person where they're at in whatever crisis they might be dealing with or whatever addictions they might have. Or... So I think that coming into that space and kind of connecting on an individual level can then help the person then go out and be a better, more effective community member. And I know like for for myself and my teachings, I know that we all have different roles in community and so it's our duty to, to fulfill those. And, you know, sometimes those traumas get in our way, but if we can find a little bit of like release and healing, then we can begin to bring ourselves back into that communal space where we can be accountable and be responsible and do all those things that we need to do for each other
2: that's really interesting uh, to listen to you talk about that um when we talk about um tattooing and healing in in that sense how is it that you see tattooing as as part of that healing process you know um in terms of like are they portals are they sites of care um and how do you see it especially for urban and indigenous lgbtq plus and Indigenous
0: women? Well, I think that, you know, those are populations, I mean, I have a a very close proximity to whiteness, as you can see. So I'm, you know, I do my best to kind of use that to help others as much as I can. Um, But those populations, two spirit LGBTQ plus and women, Indigenous women are certainly subjected to a lot of oppression. And but certainly, portals are a thing that i think about a lot like i i guess there's a certain part of tattooing when i think about it in terms of transformation or you know being in a certain space with someone and when i think about like different dimensions the fourth dimension of time and space and then you think about what is the fifth dimension and fifth dimensions are things that we don't we can't actually process because we can't see them necessarily or there's a way that we're not able to connect with them and so What are those spaces that we need to connect to and how can we access them? And so if you think about tattooing, you know, for example, if I think about the circle, which is something that I see as a portal and which is very significant in Indigenous community, in my Indigenous community. So it's like the drum, it's the dance, it's the fire, it's the moon, it's the sun, which also have great significance for us. It's, um, you know, the medicine wheel. So the circle is very Uh, important for us so if you think about putting the circle on the body depending on where you put it but it can be seen as a way to release anything you know and then also welcome things in like your ancestors teaching like the power that is there like to create some newness to transform to change so it's like a release a letting go and a welcoming in at the same time The term I would I would use is is transcendence and you know it's it's a general term, but one that applies to behaviors and experiences we see cross culturally and I I only say that just because I have written extensively on that subject and might have a book coming out in just a couple weeks. Oh, Shameless plug okay right in the middle of my like my interview what the fuck. But if you say transcendence, right? Like what does that even what does that look like? Yeah. That's
1: a great question. How do you
0: kind of like translate that to someone who's looking for that kind of healing or that kind of release? What does transcendence look like? You know? And also like in a simple kind of way, because sometimes you're in spaces where you are trying to provide this to more than one person, like at gatherings, tattoo gatherings and stuff like that, where people are they need to receive that, that healing. And so what's a simple way of maybe representing something very powerful,
1: right? So, and, and you've already kind of hit on this, but as an Indigenous Two-Spirit person, you are intimately connected with your research and, and those who you work with. Um, so can you, could you talk to us about your approach to research? Um, maybe what are some of the theories or methods or, or other inspirations that you draw on mm-hmm. when you're doing this work?
0: Yeah, I think, uh, well, we have a lot of uh, traditions and teachings. um, And most of the the ones that I know are either Machif or Cree and Nihio, And there's a lot of crossing over because our peoples came together on the plains. And so that's, you know, the nature of our families. And so, yeah, there's a lot of teachings and ceremony and just ways of being in the world that involve like gathering, storytelling, visiting Kiyo win and that that was something that was like outlawed at one point like you couldn't gather you couldn't get together right so uh certainly that could be deemed a methodology if you want to say you know like in academic terms we often have to like somehow apply our indigenous like ways of knowing and call it a methodology I don't know whatever so it, it's all of those things um and then of course like as a community worker and a cultural carrier, if I can say that. Care and service I think are my biggest approaches to research and that's uh, like often pretty difficult in academia because your hands are tied by you know like ethics and also funding and so there's a lot of garbage involved in that and so you try to weed through it um, while looking at it through this lens of like service and care and community and stuff like that but it's yeah it can be pretty difficult. I don't want to get too much into like the indigenous sort of methodologies because I'm not sure if it's like appropriate to share here, but certainly it revolves around visiting and sharing and storytelling and yeah, things like that. Yeah.
1: Well, I I appreciate that. And you talked about your mentor Dion, and I didn't include this in the little list of questions, but I've had a lot of fun following you on social media. And I saw that you guys were, making uh bone tools together god and 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 learning and learning kind of those those different uh ways of making these tattoo implements so how how has that been how has the mentorship been with dion great
0: oh my god he's just so epic like i can't even say like he's just he's super
1: reliable
0: he's always there he's got the right answer even when he doesn't have the answer he like just knows how to just, I don't know, like keep things really kind of mellow and grounded. He's just, he's great. Um, But yeah, we've explored a lot of stuff. Like I mentioned before, like just things around, you know, trauma-informed practice and consent and exchanging ideas around inclusion and kind of going forward, like in our practices together and apart, being more mindful of certain things, especially inclusion, because I think, a lot of especially like western tattoo spaces are not necessarily necessarily inclusive of not only women but like trans folks you know two-spirit folks non-binary folks it's just like it's a hellscape and you know sometimes you would think that indigenous like gatherings and stuff can be more of a gentle experience but I don't know I've seen some like transphobia and stuff there and so I think it's really up to us, and I know that Dion takes it very seriously, like to you know voice that support and create safe spaces or safer spaces where people can come to our tables and they know that it's cool to chill and just you know receive that medicine from us and and whatnot. Um, so we have we've had discussions around that, and then we've also been skin stitching and uh, making the bone tools, which is like fucking great. So yeah, we made a few bone needles uh, for stitching. And yeah, it was super funny because he's like, Hey, we gotta like sand that shit down for like, I don't know, four hours. It was just like, there's no fucking way. Like I can't do this for four hours. Like I just can't do it anyway. So I totally cheated and used the Dremel. And I was just like, well, we're not like, we're not tapping, you know, which, which like the Dremel could kind of compromise the integrity, I think, of the tool if we were going to be like tapping. So we were like, okay, yeah, maybe it's cool to use that because we're, we're just going to be sewing with it. Although like the sewing has proved like very difficult. So I tried it. He's done it already on two other people. He hasn't done it to himself. So I did it on myself first. And yeah, it was really hard to get through the skin. And, you know, you're making it quite thin, not as thin as, like, you know, a steel needle, of course. But, yeah, it was fucking hard. You're, like, sweating. So I I managed to do four stitches, um, and it was great. I was, like, super happy with the results. They're nice and dark and actually quite wide and really interesting. And then I did it on someone else. Anyway, that was
1: fucked up.
0: Like, so my friend, who is a saint for letting me do it, She was, like, really nervous, so I tried to, you know, and she's non-Indigenous, and so I tried to kind of bring her into that space of, like, care and just sort of helping her along with it, but she was in a lot of pain. and So I think we did five stitches, and one of the needles broke. Mm -hmm. So I don't know who else wants to try it, but I think at the and Danaga gathering, which is coming up in May, so I think Dion and I are going to stitch, bone stitch each other, so... That'll be fun. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I wanted to try the bow needle uh, for hand poke. So I made that long um, needle, not necessarily a needle, just like a you know, a tool. And it actually performed pretty well. It was sharp, it went in very easily, very smooth, um, a lot smoother than I had expected. But yeah, I was I was pleasantly surprised. And a couple of people have requested that they want to have that done at the tattoo gathering. But I was just, I was talking to Dion. I was like, I think it's like too experimental right now. Like I just, I'm not sure. And someone wanted something on their chest and I was like, I don't, you know what I mean? It's not like, it's like here or, you know, on your butt where no one's going to see it. It's like here. And it's Thank for your kokum, like your grandma. And I was like, Oh, I don't know if I want to, I don't know if I want to risk that, but yeah, it was fucking cool. It's been like really great. Um, And I think the mentorship is officially over at the end of May. But I mean, I think that we're still going to like work together and stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. It's been it's been really epic.
2: That sounds really cool. Um, Could you could you maybe just um, before we move on, just briefly outline what skin stitching is and what it looks like just for anyone who might not be familiar with that?
0: Yeah. So it's basically like using a needle that you would use to sew your clothes or whatever, sterilized, of course. um, And then you're just, you're sewing the skin. So you have a small piece of thread that's threaded through the needle. You dip the thread into the ink and then you sew the skin. And so it, it can make a solid line if you want, or the way Dion has taught me, you leave spaces in between each stitch so that when anyone sees it, it becomes like a topic of conversation and then like an opportunity for teaching. So wow. yeah, it's a little bit spicy, yeah. but it's really <laughs> nice. So some people are really, you know, good with that kind of pain, but some people are like, oh my God, like they can't even yeah. deal, you know, sweating, like, I can imagine. so,
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and that experience of, of pain is also something that, that we've been talking a lot about and how that can create a site of healing as well. Because, I mean, it, it's hard to heal without going through some pain. Um, Absolutely. Is that something that you see in your work with dealing with the pain? The pain, and we talk about it in terms of tattooing, it's kind of the pain that you choose. It's not It's not pain that's being put on you.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I. I mean, I think one of the most significant, like, moments that I've had is people mentioning that they – were involved in cutting a lot, like cutting themselves as a way to kind of deal with trauma, you know, um, control their bodies, you know, have some sense of control and that tattooing or being tattooed became a, a way that made them feel better about what they were doing to their body in terms of like controlling it and things like that. So that's been interesting. I think because I, the pain doesn't bother me, it's it's not, often not something that I necessarily think about. I see people struggle with it, but it doesn't really, I guess, affect me in the same way. But I think a lot of tattoo artists are like that, you know, like, and often you're tattooing yourself. So you're just sort of like, whatever, you know, <laughs> like you kind of get to a point where it's like, uh, yeah, like I'm going to do anything. I don't care. It's all good. You know, but, yeah, certainly it's it's part of that transformation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's interesting in the context of tattooing, especially when you're talking about someone who's used pain as a control mechanism or a way to reclaim some bodily ownership. But in that, in the experience of a tattoo, you're kind of relinquishing a little bit of that control and and accepting from someone else.
0: True. Yes. Yes, you are. But I think if you're with someone that you trust and, you know, the spaces, I think that was one of the questions you asked, like how do you go into that space or how do you set up the space or what does that ceremony look like? So I think this experience is certainly different from that Western experience, Um, you know, in that we're starting out by having a conversation, you know, what does this mean? What are your intentions? What are my intentions as the person giving the tattoo? As a tattoo practitioner, where do we come from? What are our nations? What are our stories? What do you hope to heal? If they're interested in sharing that, um, then we, you know, speaking about consent and the process, and you know, the space is however ceremonial they want it to be. I I do my part and my ceremony before I go into the space. And then, you know, sometimes they don't want that at all. Like there's lots of Indigenous people that don't necessarily practice ceremony on a regular basis or at all. Like it's just, that's, you know, we're we're all different kinds of people. But I generally, you know, am directed by what they want and need. You know, there's certain things that I need in the space, like tobacco, like, you know, there's protocols that need to be followed and things like that. But usually they decide like, I want some drumming or I want someone to be singing or I want my family there, or I, you know, there's different aspects to it, but yeah, I think if you're going into it with this trust and it's kind of has that, you know, it's being carried by all of these things that are a process of this traditional tattoo method of healing, then I think the pain is really just something secondary, you know,
1: um so in your in your uh talk at the tattoo gathering uh you you posed a question that I found really interesting and it was who is the warrior now?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And you were you were speaking about um traditionally tattoos have been viewed by by some as uh especially on males as signifying a a warrior status and I w- I was just wanted to ask you, who who is that now? Who do you see as the warrior now?
0: Well, I mean, I think all Indigenous people who survive this life, all anyone who survives capitalism is basically a warrior. But particularly, in particular, you know, BIPOC folks, Indigenous folks, if we're specifically talking about that, have very specific challenges that we face daily, right? Um, If I think about warriors in terms of like the people that I work with, you know, the people that are on the front lines, you know, the land protectors, the water protectors, folks that are working at the shelters, um, you know, folks that are working with houseless and street-based folks. Like I think there's like just a lot of work to be done and those people that are doing that work are certainly warriors and I think regardless of your gender i don't think our ancestors would feel that we were crossing any lines if we gave those warrior tattoos to warriors you know and i think that a lot of our information around you know gender fluid folks non-binary folks comes from i mean we have our own teachings but a lot of what's put out there you know a lot of those settler anthropologists and explorers and missionaries and all those people who wrote those books about us, either they don't see us or they see us as something bad that they wouldn't be talking about, or, you know, they don't know how we're existing. They're just interpreting it through this lens. So, and a lot of the people that are on the front lines are LGBTQ plus indigenous folks. So yeah, I mean, those are the warriors. So how do you kind of bring those male and female Um, markings that are talked about in those anthropological texts, how do you bring those together to create something for someone? And I think it's fine if I, for me, anyways, that's my opinion, if I'm wearing traditional women's tattoos and traditional men's tattoos because my body is mine and I can feel however I want about it and I can, you know, and I remember something that Dion told me, he said that a lot of our tattoos were meant to be seen from far away. So, that some uh, another nation who may be waiting to speak to us or you know, approaching us and maybe some sort of island context or whatever, they would recognize the person who's coming to speak to them to represent us in whatever fashion by these arrows or whatever you know, markings. And I feel the same way about us you know, we're here and we're you know, reclaiming and reviving these markings, and we want to be seen wearing these markings to be respected and appreciated as the descendants of those people that came before us who you would recognize on the land far away as oh that's the two-spirit medicine person i better check myself because they're coming down to give me some shit right now (laughs) you know what i mean
2: (laughs) yeah yeah, that's a really, really interesting point about viewing them from a distance. I think it's something that we've talked about, obviously not in the same context, but in, in tattooing and, and about, you know, the role that they play in creating and, and informing and first impressions and, and things like that. And I guess sometimes in Western tattooing, at least the miscommunication that can occur with that. <laughs> um, it's just a really interesting point. Yeah. Um, so I w- I wanted to ask you a bit about, um, well, I think it's fair to say that, you know, decolonialization is something that is a really critical issue now. And there's a lot more, I think, awareness of that and a lot more, um, I guess, call to address it across different, the field so I'm, I'm a psychologist and it's something that we hear a lot about at the minute um decolonializing our curriculum for example and um I guess I just wanted to kind of know a bit about what that would look like to you and the role of the tattooing in that process
0: well I kind of hate that word I just don't even like saying it I think I said that in my podcast too which was done like a few years ago but Yeah, like uh, I just feel like it's been co opted and it's just like a wet rag now. I just don't even want to think about it. But I think just the nature of us, of Indigenous folks being here and practicing their, you know, their culture and their ceremonies and taking up space and taking pride in themselves and wearing their markings and being visible, I think all of that is just inherently decolonization, right? And I think decolonization has been happening for hundreds of years you know in various ways it's just now become this kind of like term that I find that like settlers particularly really like to use and it's just I don't even know if it can happen it's just kind of like indigenization like I just now hate that word it's like I mean I've certainly used it because I think it's like on some sort of fantastical level like a great idea but I mean if you go into like the academy for example and you try to like you go into these spaces and you think you can indigenize them, but it's like, you can't, there's no indigenizing anything. This space was created to like destroy us. So why would we even want to like, so, and I think about people that are in academia and like, why are we even doing this and kind of thing. But you know, when you're up against settler organizations and institutions and government, you often need those credentials in order for them to take you seriously, even though it seems like a circle of madness, there is sort of a rationale to it. like. I'm going to get this PhD so that the next time I go to this meeting with youth protection, they're going to like, take me that much more seriously, you know? And also because I look the way I do. And then if I'm a doctor, people are going to think like, Oh, that's the white indigenous doctor or whatever. And then, you know, maybe I'll be able to make more, you know, more of a push because that's just how it works. They like their indigenous people to be more digestible, acceptable, the closer to whiteness you are, the more they listen to you. So decolonization, it's really just a matter of creating our own spaces. Again, you know, some of them have never gone away, but I think we need our own spaces of healthcare, our own schools, our own, you know, whatever our own places of, you know, doing our ceremonies, like we just need to take up space. How do you take up space? Well, you probably need money to build those spaces. So how do you get the funding? How do you make inroads through the space that just doesn't want you there, you know, or has always wanted to erase you, still wants to erase you, so it's like a constant battle to i guess if you want to say decolonize,
1: yeah, <laughs> we could spend uh many more episodes trying to unpack that uh yeah, and it's and I totally get uh what you're saying in anthropology. it is like you said, it's this buzzword now it's yeah. i don't I don't know that it has that meaning that it should and if it is if it is possible would anthropology exist anymore i don't i don't think so yeah so
0: yeah
1: i want to go back just a little bit you were speaking about incorporating different symbols and, and marks in an, in a new way and exploring that symbology so you're finding inspiration from these ancestral marks and you're in this process of creating a new symbolism so I was just wondering if you could if you could talk about that process. Uh, what do you draw this inspiration from, and and if it has informed the creation of new symbols or or meaning to you?
0: Yeah. So I think like uh, the first step is always to talk to your elders, and you know they have always have stories to share about so many things. You know, the sky world, the earth, the waters, everything, and so because the land has informed so much of the way we do everything, those are translated into motifs, into everything that we used to create. I mean, we still create, of course, but I think some of those motifs have been possibly lost, you know, or lost or hidden in museums. So, so s- some of the work that I'm doing now is going to the Canadian Museum of History, who's very helpful. And they have a large collection of planes, archives archival materials and so you know it's pretty weird like requesting to go in to see your relatives you know we consider those items to have spirit and to be part of our family and they have been in these spaces for who knows how long without being visited you know in the dark not serving their purpose you know not doing their duty which is like really strange and So, me going there to kind of, like, uh, just let them know that we haven't forgotten them. (sighs) Sorry. Getting choked up. So, um, yeah, it's it's powerful. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. No, not at all. Not expecting that, but, yeah. So, they have a lot, and they've been pulling them out for me, and so I go, and visit and try not to break down so i can get some work done but yeah just kind of sitting with the designs and trying to understand them because they don't always have a lot of like written materials about them and but you know the museum has generously offered to do a lot of that extra work for me and for essentially for community and so it's an ongoing relationship which is really nice and um, so I did meet um, Katie Pollock and uh, Gabe geez I can't remember Gabe's name but they're both curators and Gabe's last name escapes me right now but they're lovely and they've been very welcoming and they've pulled anything that I wanted to to view and so I've been working with these images and creating you know I'm not taking directly because I don't think that's correct but um you know taking aspects of them and reworking and a lot of the stuff that i'm looking at is quill work because that's what i'm drawn to and you know my name is porcupine's twin and it's just something that's it's very geometric which is also something that i'm very you know drawn to so a lot of midship or metis designs are, are often what we often see is the flower motifs that we have so So my, I'm kind of leaning towards the quill work and um, yeah, so there's a lot there. So I'm going back in May again to the museum to do some more exploring and, you know, it brings up a lot of issues around uh, repatriation and how those objects who are family members of, you know, direct family members of different families that are um, out West, But then also kin for me, like as part of my community and stuff like that. So how do you kind of navigate that and try to think like long-term and bringing those pieces back to community where they can be accessible and also safe. Like, so I realize that museums have a process and I think it's a good process too, but also I think they need to recognize that sometimes our things were not meant to last that long. And that some of those things need to be buried and they need to be, or they need to be burned or they need to, whatever the protocol is, keeping something like that intact for like, you know, centuries is not the goal, you know, it's for it to perform its purpose. um, Like we perform our purpose and then it just goes back to the earth. And so why can't you just let us do that? Right? So, but they're very open to that, those conversations. And so I'm appreciative of that. So I think that's like a longer term thing that's going on, which is talking about repatriation and bringing those, some of those things home, hopefully all of them.
1: But yeah, there's a lot. Yeah, that is. I was I was going to ask about that. So thank you for sharing that with us. Um,
0: yeah, you're welcome.
1: Uh, you you mentioned before that you created uh, your own podcast a couple of years ago. And that podcast is called Our Medicines, uh, Yes. if anybody wants to check it out. But what brought you to to create the podcast? And did it inform any of your work now or or any of your tattooing work?
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's like, um, well, actually, it was my thesis,
1: my research
0: creation for my master's. And uh, it was great. Um, It was basically just talking, spending time sharing storytelling with some amazing two-spirit folks, trans folks um, and Indigenous women about care in community, like collective care and also self-care. And so how do you practice that? Like just sort of speaking to them about what their work is, you know, getting some context around each individual and then going into uh, how they care for their community and also care for themselves. And so certainly it's, You know, it informs a lot of my work because what I'm interested in doing is caring about people and for people. So, yeah, I've learned a lot during that time and since then from those same people. So, yeah, it was a great experience, a bit of a shit show, like tech-wise, because I have no fucking idea. I was like, oh, my God, was I supposed to put... And, like, I said, um, like, thousand times during, like, while the person's fucking talking. I'm like, what? (laughs) So, like, just trying to edit it after? I'm like, you're an idiot. So I had to perform some, and with the help of a friend of mine had to perform some serious, like, surgery on those fucking episodes. It was bad. (laughs) So I don't know. Like, when I, I can't even listen to it because it's terrible. But, like, you know, a lot of generous folks really contributed a lot to that so I was super super grateful that was the podcast <laughs> yeah le- I learned a lot but you know like you're talking to someone you want to jump in and be like fuck yeah like that whole- happened to me and I totally know what you're saying but like as soon as you do that you fuck the whole recording
1: I love that see it's so cool that you were able to create that for your thesis and it's something that I'm I really like seeing in academia as different ways of creating and, and sharing knowledge. And I think the audio kind of storytelling of, of podcasting is a great way for people to learn. So, yeah,
0: yeah, I agree. Like, the, I'm, I mean, I'm in the individualized program, as you mentioned before, at Concordia, and they've been great. And it really serves the indigenous community well because you can go in and just create your own degree, really. And, you know, a lot of our work is creative work or community-based work, but it's a lot of always a lot of creating or storytelling or whatever. So that's really helped. And I'm doing my PhD in the same program. So, yeah, I think it's important for academia to understand that a lot of our work is exactly that. It's just creative and we need to involve our community because that's just how we exist, you know, that's Mm -hmm. how we function.
1: That's great. Um, you wanna b- bring us home, Becky? Yeah,
2: yeah. So yeah. I was I was
1: Land just this thing. bring <laughs> us home, Becky. <Mickey>.
2: Um <laughs> Yeah, so I guess I, I just wanted to see if if there was anything else that you did wanna add in there that we maybe haven't covered, but also to tell us about anything new that you might have in the pipeline, any any sort of exciting research developments that you might have going on.
0: Well, I think the next thing is well, I'm going back to the museum, so that's exciting for me, not necessarily exciting for you. Till like maybe next year. I don't know when I come up with some new designs, but anything other than that, no. Like I think I have July and August off, so I'm gonna be like, bye. Oh, like that's exciting <laughs> yeah, for me.
1: Sure. Not for you. That's, <laughs> that's self care time.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, Lord knows I need it. Yep.
1: <laughs> oh, I just wanted to say thank you so much for joining us and it was a real pleasure to talk to you. Yeah
0: oh my gosh like I had fun and I'm super happy that I was here and I was like oh my god I'm going on this podcast with a bunch of settlers like this is going to (laughs) be fucked up but no! Turned out just pretty good good. (laughs) (laughs) no thank you like a big for like doing this work and you know inviting you know us and you know my peers on to to discuss this and sharing it and yeah thank you thank you very much
1: all
0: right. Bye. Bye. <laughs> thanks for listening we're on twitter at inking underscore immunity and on instagram and facebook at inking.of.immunity the hosts of the show are dr chris lynn and mike Smetana at the university of alabama and dr becky owens at uk sunderland kira yancey is the production manager Thanks to the University of Alabama Anthropology Department for helping make this show possible. You can find our full, unedited Season 2 interviews on our Facebook page or watch them happening live on Facebook. See you next time.